Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. Today we'll be talking with Lyman Stone. Lyman is a demographer and an author who's written a piece for the current issue of the magazine titled The New Malthusians. And we decided that our conversation with him deserved a full episode of its own. It's full of all kinds of things that many people disagree on, but that matter a lot to the future of the world. So welcome, Lyman. My pleasure to be with you. Now, you have a piece in Plow's new issue, Hope and Apocalypse, called The New Malthusians. Uh, so before we get into that, could you just tell us a little bit about your work in demographics generally? Um, many of us follow you on Twitter and know you for your insightful and sometimes surprising threads on a wide variety of topics. So uh, what, what are all the things that you kind of, you know, get you interested in, and make you um, dig into data on things. I mean, it's been everything from the pandemic to um, fertility rates, which we've read about, to a bunch of other things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a demographer by trade. Um, so my, my real business is actually forecasting births for companies that uh, produce um, uh, products for mothers and children and infants. Um, so uh, um, uh, as part of that, I'm always trying to keep abreast of what's happening with family formation and birth rates and all these things, uh, which has me just kind of reading uh, broadly and deeply um, in, uh, in these areas while also trying to keep up with, um, with very recent uh, developments. Uh, and as a result, I end up uh, tweeting a lot, of, um, a lot of things obliquely related to demography <laughs> Um, but it means that I, I end up spending a lot of time thinking about um, what really matters for understanding fertility, um, what really matters for understanding family formation, what, what is actually going to give us useful information about what, what's going to happen with these things in the future. Um, and so that being the case, uh, you know, that provides me opportunities to reflect on um, a range of topics related to family and fertility, um, including, for example, the relationship between climate change and population that, that uh, triggered uh, this article or was the topic of this article. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are a few topics that don't touch on family formation. So it's, it's kind of an entree into uh, a whole range of topics. A theory of everything. So um, let's dive into the piece. It's called The New Malthusians, and many people may be remembering Malthusianism, hearing about it somewhere, and Thomas Malthus. Uh, and uh, you also talk about a fellow um, homegrown American Massachusetts atheist called Charles Knowlton, uh, lesser known. Um, could you start off by introducing us to those two characters and how, how you kind of use them to set up, you know, the discussion about population trends today in the face of climate change? Yeah, so there's, um, uh, you've got these two guys uh, in the late 19th, or the, the late 18th, early 19th centuries, um, Knowlton and Malthus. And Malthus is um, an Anglican priest um, who... Uh, also does some like political economy writing. Eventually he becomes very well known for that. Um, and one of his things he wrote about, hardly his only contribution, um, is, uh, is population. He basically argues that um, population increases exponentially 
the means of feeding the population only increases linearly. So eventually, all human populations must ultimately grind down to uh, um, an iron law of subsistence. That's actually a Ricardian, uh, that's actually a term from David Ricardo, but there, there's a connection between the two. But this idea that basically the, the market, the economy, um, the fundamental forces of, of production must press average well-being down to subsistence. Um, and so in the long run, um, we're all going to be miserable um, because of, in Malthus says, because of population. Now, other economists at the time agreed that in the long run, we're all miserable, but they disagreed about exactly why. Um, uh, they said, oh, it was land rents or is this or that, but Malthus said it was population. Um, and this argument um, is sufficiently intuitive and it deals with forces that lay people can understand easily enough in, in a non-technical way that it really caught on. Um, it really became something that people could, they could grasp it easily. Um, uh, and, uh, and so it, it, it never really went away. Malthus's book went through numerous editions. It was enormously popular. Um, it was called an essay on the principle of population. Um, and, uh, and he gets credit as, you know, he's one of the important early economists, an important early demographer. Um, uh, and so demography really gets its start in this kind of concern about are there too many people. Um, now, on the other side of the Atlantic, we have uh, Knowlton, who is uh, a doctor. Um, uh, he's a country doctor, and um, he's uh, a free thinker. Um, right in the style of Thomas Paine, sort of. He's, he's part of this generation in Massachusetts that's extremely secularized, right? Church attendance at this point in Massachusetts is lower than it is today. Um, this is one of, the, one of the most secular periods and places in American history. Um, and Knowlton is looking at his, his um, patients and seeing they have lots of problems. So, so basically he writes a manual on how to deal with common problems that people in the country might deal with if you don't have a doctor around. He wrote his book, Fruits of Philosophy. It's basically just, you know, things, you know, here's remedies for common problems. And part of it covered birth limitation. And he had some advice on how to avoid having children. Um, the advice wasn't very scientifically sound. Um, if you followed his advice, you were probably still going to have kids just like if you didn't follow his advice. Um, but the book was banned because it was obscene. So... You've got these two strands in Massachusetts. There's uh, secularization leading to a change in attitudes and ideas, leading to the origination of this idea of conscious birth limitation. By the way, this happened at the same time for the same reasons. Secularization leading to the foment of new ideas, um, leading rapidly to the idea of birth limitation. This happened at the same time in France. Um, but kind of separate strands here, basically just because of the, the linguistic barrier. Although when Knowlton's book started to circulate, people started referring it to it as uh, the French remedy, because it was known that French people did this stuff too. Um, so uh, middle of the 19th century, England has been industrialized for a while. Malthus is dead. Knowlton is dead. Um, England is industrial, it's wealthy, but they still are having, you know, four or five kids each. They don't have a fertility transition. Um, 
But there's a, a group of um, secularists uh, named Bradlaugh and Besant, who are the, the plaintiffs here, and they publish Knowlton's book, right? Because the only birth control manual they can find. Um, they get knocked down for censorship. It's a case. It becomes a celebrity case. It's covered in the news everywhere. Well, actually, not quite everywhere. Many places. And wherever it is covered, fertility immediately begins to fall. This is true at the level of, like, counties within England. Some newspapers covered, some didn't, so we have good, like, random variation. This is true of Anglophone Canadians versus Francophone Canadians, Anglophone South Africans versus Dutch South Africans. It's true of recent English immigrants into the U.S. versus longtime American residents. Um, wherever people were exposed to news of this trial, their birth rates started to fall. Again, not because they actually get, had effective contraception. But because coverage of the trial introduced this idea that it's okay to limit your childbearing. Um, after this trial, it all shakes out. Um, these two people, Bradlaugh and Besant, found a new organization, which they call the Malthusian League. And that is the origin of the term as we know it now. Malthus himself would have hated the idea that he his name was promoting birth control, because in his book, he says, one of the terrible things that will happen if we don't control the situation is people will start sinning by using birth control. Um, like this is one of his like adverse outcomes. And so then Malthusian League comes along and is like, yeah, birth control. Um, uh, they also are sponsoring the first abortion clinic, the first permanent abortion clinic in the Western world um, is, is uh, I believe it's Stopes is the name, but then it's the Malthusian League sponsoring it. So this is the origin of a lot of this population control idea. Um, it's based in a deep pessimism about the ability of human ingenuity to provide for human needs. I mean, what's so fascinating about the story that you tell here is that it's simply this idea. It's not even any technology. You know, there's, there's an argument, you know, out there, particularly... Um, will be familiar to people who are kind of steeped in, in Catholic social teaching that it's the advent of birth control technologies that drive down birth rates. But here you have an example of simply the idea that we should drive down birth rates uh, somehow, you know, I guess by whatever mechanism of uh, decision-making by, by married people um, results in them having less kids and presumably desiring less kids. Um, do we know do we know how that all yeah there's there's some heads? there's some evidence of a decline in fertility desires in the late late nineteenth early early twentieth century, but it's not very strong um it doesn't actually look like there's a huge change in desired family size um it looks like what was happening is that people used to have more kids than they wanted to have um and the reason they did that is because a lot of them died and they didn't know how many would survive and so to get your desired surviving family size, you have to have a lot more children. Um, but, uh, um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, there was this idea that circulated, and again, this isn't the only time France had their fertility tr transition in the 18th century. And it was when these ideas about secularization and, and birth limitation started to spread. Um, uh, so that's, English is not the only example of this. I mean, you can go back even further, um, uh, 
we know from archival and historic demographic records that fertility rates in Mongolia before the fertility transition were well below natural, right? That Mongolian women were only having about 3.5 or four children, four and a half children maybe, um, on average before, before any kind of modern birth control. Well, why? Well, because in Mongolia, it wasn't stigmatized to have sex outside of marriage. And that resulted in really high rates of venereal disease. And venereal disease leads to infertility. Um, and so a social norm led to... I mean, there's lots of things that can lead to low fertility. We have extensive evidence of low fertility in a lot of Chinese societies from a thousand years ago. Um, and we know that it was because of a, a practice of... Um, uh, serial polygamy, that you would have um, an elite man might have six or seven wives, but he would only actually uh, procreate with one at a time. Um, and so this meant that each woman actually had very low fertility, even if the man had a large number of offspring. So there, there are a lot of different ideas and norms that can spread through societies that can suppress birth rates um, throughout history. And uh, since we're talking about it, let's, could, you, could you unravel a little the link between secularization and these dropping birth rates or the desire uh, for dropping birth rates? I mean, how is that intuitive? Yeah. So um, pretty much everybody knows that in general, more religious people have, um, have more children. This is true for every Abrahamic faith. Um, there's debate about if this is true in, um, in Buddhism and Hinduism. Um, there's some evidence that within Buddhism, um, more, more devout individuals may not have more children. Um, but, uh, but in general, um, particularly in the Abrahamic faiths, more religious means more babies. So why is this? Well, sometimes it's specific beliefs, right? Some religions have specific beliefs telling you you should have children. So Catholicism is a great example of that. Although actually, in the immediate post-Reformation period, um, Protestants tended to have larger families than Catholics. Um, it's not really until the 1700s that, that Luther procreating and setting a good example, or yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. It's um, it's there's there aren't nuns, right? Um, now over time, dynamics change. You know, Protestantism kind of associates with this kind of mercantile elite where new norms are are spreading. But um, uh, but generally, so why does religion tend to have this effect? Um, sometimes it's specific beliefs, um, about family size or children, but often it's not that. Sometimes we see that just religious people in general just seem to have more children um, aside from specific beliefs. So what could it be? Well, one argue is, argument is that it's about a sense of community. Having children is costly. Um, in every society, through every epoch of human history, having children is costly. Um, it takes effort. It's personally risky for a mother in particular. Um, it is, it is difficult to raise a child. Um, it's very costly. So, so why would you do it? And the answer is, uh, one answer is, well, you don't want to do it, but you want to have sex. And so you do it accidentally, but this is a nonsense answer. People have known throughout history, plenty of ways to achieve 
sexual satisfaction without resulting in children? This is kind of a ridiculous answer. Um, so why have children if not just a byproduct of, of satisfaction? Um, and the answer is because you think that your personal identity, your personal status, your personal standing, your personal whatever, sense of well-being is wrapped up in a community that will outlive you. That is that you think you have a stake in future generations and in past generations. So if you strongly identity, identify with some community that's multi-generational, could be religion or it could be something else, could be ethnic, um, uh, then you're very likely to have high fertility. There's actually a good example of this, that, which is not religious, um, and that is Roma communities throughout Europe, uh, Eastern Europe especially. Roma tend to have very high fertility, even controlling for education level and, and any other socioeconomic data. This is uh, Roma, for listeners who don't know, is, is the ethnic group that historically would have been referred to as gypsies, although that, that term is a, seen as a pejorative now. Um, they have very large families. Why? Well, because Roma cultivate uh, a very strong sense of identity within the community. Many Roma people feel that the, the growth and survival and perpetuation of that community is very important to them. Within Israel, more religious Jews have more children, but even secular Jews in Israel have far more children than most people in other rich countries, um, and even than, than, um, uh, than, uh, than Jews in other countries. Why? Because... Jews in Israel strongly identify with the community of Israel and believe that it's under threat and it needs to be perpetuated. Let's get back to uh, Thomas Malthus, who's presumably a pious, benevolent Anglican clergyman. We can only assume. Um, somewhat. He was kind Except of when pious. it came to the Corn Laws. So his ideas, yeah. even in his own day, had some pretty real-world effects. They did. So if you believe that um, eventually we're all going to starve anyway, you can't really change this, right? Population is going to grow. We're going to run out of food. This is just how it's going to be. Then efforts to alleviate famine are, are almost inhumane, right? Because if you alleviate famine now, there will just be more people to suffer in the future. Malthus's ideas basically you know, kind of got to clear the ground occasionally. Um, and it's worth noting that this idea and related ideas were pretty common among British colonial elites, and they show up explicitly in documents, for example, related to the management of the British Raj in India. That is that we know for an archival fact that a lot of British colonial elites in India actively believed this argument and so this is why there would be famines in India while the British were exporting wheat or rice, right? And it's because they just sort of thought this is good for the Indians. We need to starve out a few of them to keep, keep things down. Um, India had, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people die of famine during, the British, uh, during British rule. There's not been a famine in India since independence. Why? Because it was never about a food shortage. Um, it was about a set of beliefs and attitudes. Um, and it was this idea that, um, well, you know, 
uh, we're going to run out of uh, we're going to run out of resources. We're going to uh, it's this Malthusian idea that population is going to increase too much anyway, so we got to control population. And if they won't cut off having so many babies, then we're going to have to deal with it on the other side. The positive check, it's called. Now, of course, these ideas have not, despite the the horrors that they they've wrought uh, in countries like India. Um, they've not been banished from the polite public sphere. Um, population worries are every bit as popular now as they've ever been. Um, I recall ta- being taken on my school trip to the UN back in the late 80s or so and getting a long lecture from some UN bureaucrat about, you know, uh, we're all going to die of starvation, you know, by the time that you're in your, you know, upper years. Um, the Population Bomb book by Paul Ehrlich, I think you mentioned from 1968, um, reprises many of Malthus's ideas. Um, is that simply a continuation of this whole line of thought? Yeah, this is the same thing going on. And, you know, you can see it in different things. It's food or it's oil or it's, it's whatever. Pick your thing. You know, it's coal. It's, um, there's always something we're about to run out of and we're all going to die. Um, and it's never true. Uh, it's, it's based on a conceptual, a fundamental misunderstanding of how humans work, right? The simple truth is when we need something, we go looking for it. There was no COVID vaccine before COVID. There is a COVID vaccine now. In fact, there's like 20 of them. Um, that's how humanity works. When we're starving, we go look for food. Now, right now, we are not producing a fraction of the potential amount of food that the world could produce. If we all became vegetarians um, and we used the most efficient farming techniques everywhere, feeding 50 or 100 billion people is child's play, right? We're nowhere close to how much food we could produce. Um, we're, we're not even scratching the surface, Um the amount of energy that's available on Earth from solar, from tidal, from geothermal, um, the amount that we could capture if we, if we you know, were collecting energy in space. I mean, we're not scratching the surface of the amount of resources that are available to us if we want it. We just have to want it enough. Um, so what's going on with all these kind of Malthusian ideas, these basically shortage ideas? is that they're basically just that the idea of shortage is really intuitive. The human brain is hardwired, we could say evolutionarily hardwired, um, to be afraid of shortage, to stockpile, to plan for hard times, to deal with the ever-present threat of running out. And so that's really, really intuitive to us. We see the, the curving line and the straight line, and they're going to intersect, and we just we, we know what's going to happen. So there's you this, know when this Y2K like comes along, you can yeah. almost notice people just just thrilled yeah. for a chance to like stockpile those beans. Yeah, yeah. So like this, it's like it's like this hack in our head. We are the people who survived famine, our our ancestors, right? And so we are we are adapted for this, which is why you know diets like intermittent fasting are really effective, right? Because they 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 optimize on a response that that is is deeply ingrained in us. Okay. So, um, 
But ingenuity doesn't work like that. The space of time in which humans could invent solutions to newly emergent problems is like a couple of hundred years. We have not adapted to this. We have not made a cognitive shift to account for the fact that we do actually live in a different world now. Um, and so this idea that we don't have to be governed by the shortage and famine mentality, that we can, in fact, live under a mentality of freedom and ingenuity and innovation is just, it, there's just a mental block there. It's just not how our brains naturally respond. Um, and so you really have to kind of like uh, uh, crush down your, your, uh, your natural impulse there, right? There's kind of a, a grasping old Adam that just wants to pile up uh, rice in the basement. Um, uh, and you have to just accept that like, first of all, in a famine, that won't work because like someone will take it from you. <laughs> The best, the best defense in a famine is not a food stockpile, but, but good friends and allies and bullets. Um, and, uh, um, and secondly, that the way to prevent a famine is not stockpiling food or, or, or curbing population, but, uh, but constant innovation. I was just going to say, Susanna, um, Lyman and I will have fun mocking your Anglican um, co-religionist, Thomas Malthus. Is there any defense you want to offer at this point? I have no defense to make of Thomas Malthus. Uh, he, he can go fly a kite. Um, I, do, I do have a sort of question about, so one of the things that I really appreciated about your piece was that you focused on um, the kind of fundamental existential or um, spiritual meaning of having children. Um, that this is something that's not just something that you might choose to do. It's something that is a fundamental expression of hope in your, your own life. Um, a sense that your own life is good, that you're part of an intergenerational project that's good. And that human existence is something that's an adventure that we're exploring together that's worth carrying on. Um, and the sort of massive despair that you're hearing from some of the people that you talk to you know, is mass, it's extraordinarily unrealistic in a lot of ways. Like you mentioned, um, the kind of death rate of children, um, in pre-modern times is a reason that people tended to have larger families than they really wanted because they wanted to eventually have at least a minimum number of children. Um, it's bizarre to think about, um, you know, women today saying, I, I can't bear to bring a child into this world when there's such a high probability that they'll have a terrible life. When you're looking at something like in I think 1720 or something, 50% of kids died before their fifth birthday. Um, it, you know, we're better than that. Or if we're not, then what is it that you're saying is bad? Like there's something about life that people seem to be saying is bad that does not have to do with being alive. It has to do with sort of experiencing yeah. themselves as not having meaning in their life. Um, and you know, one of the ways that I sort of like to think about this, one of the sort of like little mental hacks that I think it's fun to do, um, just to sort of re like reset your perception of human beings is imagine that you're like an alien or like in whatever that like bar is in, um, star, star Wars where they show up and it's like a sort of sleazy. What's, what's this bar that I'm <laughs> the Moss Eisley canteen. Thank you. The Moss Eisley canteen. I literally, I had this conversation several times. I can never remember what it is. Imagine being in the Moss Eisley canteen and you're surrounded by all these interesting aliens, but you come across like one other human, that human's going to be the most precious thing that you've ever run into. Like the sense of human beings as 
fundamentally precious and interesting and like you, um, as opposed to fundamentally too many of us and getting what, you know, sort of being too much for the environment and, you know, being essentially bad for the world, I think is something that like we need to kind of re retune our minds to. Um, but there is a kind of question that I, I have about something that I've noticed in your, your general sort of approach to these things. The Club of Rome was the kind of um, obviously um, um, Paul Ehrlich-ish body that um, sort of took up this mantle of population control in the 70s. And there was a kind of counter organization to that called the Club for Growth. Um, and there's a kind of, which was very much focused on things like Norman Borlaug's Green Revolution, the golden rice that Norman Borlaug developed in, I think, mm -hmm. the 70s, did actually go a long way towards preventing the kind of mass starvation that people were expecting. And that's a technical solution. And I, I wonder about the, there's a kind of thing that it seems to me that humans need. Um, we tend to be a little bit Wendell Berry-ish at, at Plow um, in a way that I think you're not. Um, because I think you think that it's romantic and fundamentally kind of like a, a cultivating a scarcity mindset. And I, but for me, at least like introspecting, it seems to me that like human beings kind of need to feel as though they're in a, 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 a world that has in some way scarce resources, in some way like infinitely abundant resources. God gives us, you know, good things in abundance, but in another way, we kind of do need the world to be pushing back on us. And we need that sense of like limitation in order to feel like we're actually having an effect on the world and a world of like infinite abundance without any effort on our part or out without any ingenuity on our part. Um, like maybe that will work in the new heavens and the new earth. Although I tend to think that they'll require ingenuity as well, but it certainly doesn't work here. So I feel like we need scarcity, but we also need not to fall into that scarcity mindset. You know, I uh, I do love uh, my fellow cranky Kentuckian. Um, when I was young, I thought that I would be a, a poet, and so I uh, I mailed him a poem of mine, and he said, uh, um, "This is almost a poem." Was his reply. So I didn't. I uh, I went into economics instead. Um, but uh, um, <laughs> um, so you know, I um, I think. We have to distinguish between um, what is good for a human and what is good for humans. Um, I think what is good for a human uh, is to live a limited life. Um, to be content with your own small place in the world. Um, to... Uh, in some sense, yeah, like almost like a scarcity mindset to to look at the things you have and say this is enough, um, and uh, um, not to have unlimited ambition. Um, at the same time, uh, I think that what humans need is the opposite of that. Um, that is. We, in fact, need people of extraordinary ambition. Um, perhaps we don't want to be them, but we do need them. Um, I mean, I mean, and, and this, is, this, is, uh, this is the classic 
problem, uh, frankly, um, that, that confronts Barry and is going to confront uh, any Anabaptist community in the world of well, it's the problem of pacifism, right? Um, that it's, it's clearly an ethically good way of life, and also it depends on non-pacifists protecting it. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, it's, it is this whole like, oh, well, we're, we're just going to keep solving all the problems forever and keep innovating forever. There is a kind of hubris to this, right? Like there's a kind of, um, uh, you know, how excellent is man, how noble his reason, like, eh, eh, that's not quite right. You know, man is, is fallen. Um, but... Um, the alternative to that, the, the institutionalization of a more, and I, I say this uh, fondly, of a more parochial mindset, and again, I'm from Kentucky, being parochial is a compliment, right? Like, the more backwards, the better. But like, the institutionalization of that idea just leads to mass death. Like, ideas that are beautiful on the small scale are terrible on the great scale. Um, they actually become monsters. Um, the way you treat your spouse, the, 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 you know, constantly urging them on to goodness, telling them, you know, speaking the truth to them, all this. If the government treated you that way, if the government treated everyone that way, it would be horrible, right? You, there's, within the confines of small, intimate relationships, there are things you can do that you can't do at scale, right? And so we need both, right? We need people to create small lives for themselves, um, to create human-scaled lives for themselves. But that requires a superstructure of vastly greater efficiency to make it functional and humane. So... I think it, it kind of depends on the level we're talking about. And I think, yes, we often have a discomfort saying that there's a distinction between, you know, the, the individual and the collective. But at the end of the day, you know, we are not supposed to murder, but the state exists to bear the sword. I can't just go and take money from my neighbor, but I should render to Caesar what is Caesar's because Caesar does have the right to take money from me. You know, there actually are biblically speaking, different uh, vocations for different institutions and persons, which create different duties, responsibilities, obligations, and ultimately moral prerogatives. I'm feeling like Lutheranism, like coming at me out of the screen here. It's like very powerful Lutheranism. Yeah. So we'll do, we'll do the Anabaptist Lutheran thing properly, <laughs> in due course, because that is one way to characterize it. No, I'm going to restrain myself. Um, but um, I want to get back to the hubris. You mentioned the hubris of thinking that human ingenuity is, is infinite. Because one could read your essay, Lyman, and, um, and say, well, what's the end point, right? So I'm a climate change activist. I see global you know, temperatures predictably rising and rising and rising. And you tell me that Techno with technology, we'll be able to blunt this, perhaps, you know, for, for, you know, maybe several generations, maybe for thousands of years. Who knows? But at some point, um, isn't Malthus right? Population, if we're 
uh, especially if we're religious uh, Elon Musks, we will continue to have um, exponentially rising population. And at some point, uh, don't we run out? Is there any, ever a point at which Malthus becomes right? Yeah. So um, eventually we have the heat death of the universe, right? So we have to work back from there that, first of all, if what you want, if, if your standard for something being good is that it is indefinitely sustainable, then goodness does not exist. Obviously, I believe that there will be a, um, you know, the, the, the second coming before that. But just speaking purely secularly, right? Like sustainability is a ridiculous standard, right? Because nothing is sustainable. All flesh fades, right? Everything ends. There will be an end to the universe. It will just get cold and stop. So like right at, right, right at the beginning, we have to stipulate that like this isn't a reasonable standard to begin with. So what we really mean is we want it to be sustainable on some finite time span. So like, how long is that time span? Um, you know, how long do we care about making sure that things are still good, right? And I would be comfortable saying like, we want to make it through a reasonable interglacial period, right? I know that sounds like this is like kind of arbitrary, but like, there are massive climate swings that we don't control. I would like to make it through an entire inter interglacial period. Another hundred thousand years or so. Yeah. So I would like to have not rendered Earth uninhabitable in that period. So if we're talking a hundred thousand years, how much do we need to do? Well, rather under the radar, the most recent couple climate change like forecasts have actually been coming down. We're improving. You know why? Because alternative energy is getting really cheap. <laughs> Um, electric cars are being rolled out really fast. Like all this stuff is happening at a breakneck pace. Um, so first of all, I would just say like, just empirically, like we're going to beat this thing. This is not going to like our great, our, our great grandchildren are not going to worry about this. Um, so it, that's the first thing I'd say. And secondly is, um, you know, there will always be some new problem. And this is why I don't worry too much about like, uh, a future where there's no work to be done. Um, there will always be work to be done. Um, there will always be a problem. There will always be something for humans to solve. And where does it end? I mean, I don't know. Nuclear war? Like, we'll always find a way to destroy ourselves. Um, it's, not going, it's not going to end with Earth destroying us. You know, it... it, it <laughs> If humanity is going to be destroyed, it will either be um, the finger of God or man against himself. I don't disagree with that. Um, what I wanted to move to next is just the strength of the Malthusian ideas as they're still out here. And one thing that's kind of encapsulated that uh, to me is um, – an article from the German magazine Spiegel that I read a couple of years ago. I just pulled it up again because as everything that Thomas Malthus seemed to be saying 200 years ago, um, let me just read you um, the headline. This is from four German journalists, good progressive secular journalists, entitled Four Billion More, What to Do About Massive Population Growth. The populations in the poorest countries on Earth are doubling every two de few decades. That necessarily leads to conflict over scarce resources such as land, food, and work, and to more migration to Europe, uh, minor parenthesis. But there are solutions, it concludes. 
Um, and it takes us through Lagos. Final solutions. Oh, there are solutions. Um, we, we're toured around Lagos, Ghana, um, Niger, where people have 10 children per woman. Um, a warning from Paris, the Sahel zone is going to uh, desertify and there'll be a massive immigration to France of people from the Sahel. Um, but uh, Kanoa, Nigeria, Boko Haram is, is bre- um, breeding off of this high child per woman situation. But then we get the end of the article to Berlin, uh, titled Empowering Women to Save the World. And what's happening in Berlin? Uh, there are some good people here helping women in Africa to have fewer kids. Um, happy news. Uh, there is no clear prescription for countries facing demographic explosion. Um, but if we follow the lead of these good people working in Berlin, there will be comprehensive sex education campaigns and family famine programs. Uh, we'll create uh, prosperity for those kids that are brought into the world. Um, and... Uh, there's huge upsides that we can already see happening in uh, secularizing parts of Africa. Um, I just continue to find this article just unbelievably um, transparently um, colonialist, I think is the nicest word you could come up with. Um, we'll be solving how do you account Africa's for just the problem. acceptability of that type of rhetoric? Yeah, I mean, you'd think that people would learn that here we're going to solve Africa's problem for it by making sure there are less Africans. You'd you think people would realize that what that is, um, particularly when we say, oh, family planning programs. Okay. So like some of that is handing out birth control. Okay. Some of it is facilitating abortions, which to be clear is not the prudential check that Mouth has talked about. That is the positive check. That's death. Um, so that that's not really uh, um, that's that's no improvement. Um, I mean, it, the reality is um, humans will always be happy to make other people suffer to solve their problems. That's just humanity. Um, as long as we continue to see population as a problem to be solved, it will naturally lead to us looking for the kinds of solutions that humans look for. Which means we will look for ways to make other people suffer. And when population policy is, when population policy is implemented to restrict fertility in a country, it's not random who suffers either. I mean, in China, it's not elite urban Han people suffering. No, it's Uyghurs. In Peru, when they implemented a family planning program funded by the U.S. in the 1990s, it wasn't random urban educated people being sterilized. It was Quechuan women being kidnapped and sterilized against their will. Um... In the U.S., it was within living memory that we were experimenting on Puerto Rican women. Um, it's it's not random who suffers from these things. Fanny Lou Hamer, who I wrote a, a biography of, a mini biography of for Plow, and who is kind of one of Plow's um, presiding sort of people, I would say, um, had what was called a Mississippi appendectomy, which is a sort of involuntary um, hysterectomy. 
which was something that was commonly done to black women during civil, just before the civil rights era. That's, it's, um, it's not random who this happens to. And so, uh, you know, the idea, I mean, when I go to, you know, when I talk to my fellow demographers, they'll say, you know, of course we oppose, you know, coercive and violent birth control programs. You know, we want to respect everyone's reproductive rights. Um, and I say, okay, show me a country that had one of these programs that didn't forcibly sterilize anyone. And they'll say, oh, this country, and then I'll Google it, and in five minutes I found, you know, a court case of a forcible sterilization. You know, like, there's not an example of a country doing this and not committing crimes against humanity. I mean, you can even look at Europe. Denmark, um, in the 1950s and 60s, wanted to help Greenland modernize. Um, and they successfully reduced fertility from six children per woman to two in about 10 years. Um, and they would go into villages and they would offer them um, uh, IUDs. And they'd say, you can remove this anytime in the future. It's not permanent. And they'd offer the IUDs and they'd you know, pay people to accept them and give them like some benefits to accept it. Uh, and then they would leave and they would just never come back to remove them. Um, and they wouldn't tell the women how to remove them. And then they'd say, oh, you know, we're making a new town for you. You can move to this new town. We'll have medical services. There'll be a clinic there all the time to help you. Um, but you got to leave your old town that has your, you know, your traditional way of life. You got to move into these apartment buildings we've made for you where the drains cannot handle fish blubber. Um, I, I could go on. The Greenland situation is like, it's insane. The result of it was they tried to declare independence and like, now Greenland is moving towards independence and hates the Danes and all this stuff. Um, but the point is, like, there's no example of a country in some, like, really humane and rights-consistent rights consistent way trying to rapidly reduce their fertility. We can all, I hope, you know, we, we can easily see that coercive sterilization of other people is bad. And so there's, it's not just bad. There's something, like, deeply evil about it. Um, that kind of goes beyond ordinary evil. Um, but what you, the, the claim that you make is really like that the, that when we do this to ourselves voluntarily, um, when we're sort of like deciding for reasons that seem good to us at the moment not to have children, there's something, there's something equally ugly there going on that's directed almost yeah. against ourselves. And that if we see, yeah, if we so see the external directed thing as deeply sinister, we ought to be able to see the internally directed thing as sinister as well. Yeah. So, I mean, when we see somebody saying, well, I'm not going to have children because having a child is bad for the world. It's like, okay, I disagree. I think that's wrong. I think it's, it's there, there is um, an evil force at work making you think that. But in some sense, your motive is good, right? Like you're trying to help people by not having a baby. But when someone says, I don't want to have children because that child's life will be so miserable, because their life won't be worth living, um, to me, that's a whole different, it's a whole different beast, which is, I mean, which is why, you know, the, the whole article I said, this, this is a new kind of Malthusianism. Well, there's really not a Malthusianism, right? Because it's no longer about like a shortage. It's, it's about... Um, quality of life. And I think what's going on there, you know, how can you think this when um, life is objectively so much better, 
than in the past, right? Because it's objectively better, right? We've had progress. Um, so uh, if you're listening, you can't hear, you, you can't see how skeptical my face is when I just said those words. Um, but uh, um, but the, I think what's going on is that humans, um, what we do is we don't worry about um, how bad things were. We worry about how much worse things could get. What I mean is um, the worst thing to us is uh, losing potential gains. That is, the potential benefits of a prosperous modern life are so big. You know, you could live such a long, healthy, pleasurable life. Um, Sacrificing that. Wow, that's a huge sacrifice. Whereas 300 years ago, what are you sacrificing? Your life is nasty, brutish, and short. Um, Like, that's, you know, I, I don't want to simplify it too much. Like, you know, I, I do think that sometimes we're, we're, we're too critical. We, we jump to see the past as, as this dark place when there, there's more complexity to it that. But like, life expectancy was short. Lots of people did die. There was a lot of pain and suffering that now we can alleviate. Um, That now, in some sense, what you give up by having children actually has really grown. Um, You're giving up a lot. And so because having a child involves giving up more, it really makes you think more about all the quality of life stuff around having children. You think about how much you're giving up and then someone tells you the world is going to be even worse in the future. You think, well, gosh, they'll have to give up. So like, and just the whole chain of continuing life just seems to be a whole lot of giving up. Um, and so I think that's what's going on. Um, and I think that that's kind of the curse of, of wealth, right? This is, uh, we have we have found the eye of the needle, um, right? That <laughs> you have so much that you dare not share it with another person. I like to I like to you know from this re- return to your earlier point um, about how religious people have more kids because of the sense of intergenerational community um, or members of cohesive ethnic groups do. Um, Because I'm trying to think of what are the, if if there were basically mental, intellectual changes that drove down birth rates, for instance, at the end of the 19th century, even without effective methods of contraception, is there any way of kind of like reverse engineering that now? Yeah. So pronatal policy can do a bit, but yeah, I mean, it it doesn't create a radical change. Um, It may be worth doing, but it, it, it doesn't radically alter things. When we look at places that, so when we look at high fertility, high income communities, they have some things in common. Uh, and what I mean by high fertility, high income communities or is, uh, is groups of people that still have a lot of babies, but they are in societies that have long life expectancies, modern amenities, stuff like that. What these groups all have in common is intense within-group solidarity. Um, We're talking about Mormons. We're talking about Hasidic Jews anywhere, Israeli Jews uh, in general. Um, uh, We're talking about um, 
frankly, uh, any conservative Anabaptist sect. Um, and the more, and actually I have a, a paper I'm working on right now, uh, the more socially closed off an Anabaptist sect is, the higher its fertility. Uh, even though all the groups have the same theology around like children and contraception and stuff, um, except for the very liberal ones, they have a little different on contraception things. But like, you've got like the same theology here, but wildly different birth rates, and it's basically just a measure of like social closure. Um, the more intensely, uh, another example is is uh, the country of Georgia. Um, uh, the patriarch of the Georgian Orthodox Church wanted the birth rate to be higher, so he declared he would personally baptize any third or higher child born to a married Georgian Orthodox couple. The birth rate rose from 1.5 to 2.3 in 18 months. Um, entirely among married parents, overwhelmingly third or higher children, it has remained near replacement or above for 15 years now. There were a lot of reasons for this. It's not necessarily duplicable everywhere, but it was related to the role that the Georgian Orthodox Church and the Patriarch himself had in in linking people to a, a, a Georgian identity, a sense of community with the nation. Um, it is community solidarity. It is, like I said, feeling a sense of identity with a community that stretches beyond your own lifespan, that motivates the costly choice of fertility. So how do you create identification with that? Well, one way is you make sure your children do not accidentally pick up identification with something else. So like, quite frankly, one of the ways that you make sure fertility rate is high is you ensure that whatever loyalties and identities your children pick up are overwhelmingly long-term multi-generational communities. So no sports. I mean, I'm, I'm joking, but like not really. Like, like sports and TV are probably big problems. And there's good evidence that uh, whenever radio or TV towers are set up, fertility tends to fall in the area around them. And it's not because radio waves are shooting people's organs, right? It's because Netflix and chill tends to lead to Netflix and not so much chill. Um, but uh, um, uh, no, but I mean, you know, there are competing identities. So if you want to boost fertility... Don't create competing identities or don't allow your children to acquire those identities. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're a country like South Korea and your fertility rate is 0 0.8 per woman, well, maybe you need to think about what identities you've created for people to affiliate with. Maybe the fact that your culture is increasingly built around boy and girl bands where all the individuals are like forced to be single and childless as long as they're famous is a problem. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff you have to think about is what are the identities that people are picking up and are those identities actually, um, do they actually situate childbearing in a productive and honorable position? Well, I guess I'm going to have to start looking at my Mets habit. Uh, you know, through different lenses. Um, <laughs> thanks a lot, Lyman. This has given us a lot to think of. And, you know, this is a conversation I hope we can continue um, again sometime. Um, this is really great. Um, people, uh, you should uh, read Lyman's article and follow him on Twitter. You'll learn a lot as I continue to do. Thanks so much for taking time for this, Lyman. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Y'all have a nice day. Thanks for listening. 
Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And for a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $32 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. Join us next week as we talk with Kim Comer about the Bruderhof community in Austria, Catholic Anabaptist reconciliation movement, and inherited guilt and reconciliation in general, and Anika Prather about classics, classical education, and race in America. Mm-hmm.